welcome to another episode of the Thwipcast. On today's episode, I'm going to be reviewing Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I saw this last night in IMAX. I'm recording this on February 18th. I have a lot of notes to go through. What I'm going to do is do a spoiler-free first, and then I'm going to do spoiler talk. Before I get into it, I'm just going to say I really enjoyed it. I think it's a great introduction to the new story, and I can't wait to see where this is headed. If anyone has not seen this yet, then listener, viewer discretion, you know what you're getting into now. So if you don't want to hear anything about it, then stop listening, stop watching come back after you have seen it, but I'm going to get into spoiler-free right now, so you're okay if you want to listen to this, but I highly recommend leaving as soon as I talk about spoilers because there's some pretty big stuff. So I'm going to break this down into four parts. I have characters, story, effects, and music. So I'm going to start off with characters. So first off, I have Scott. First of all, Paul Rudd is amazing in this role. He brings all the right elements. He knows how to balance seriousness and comedy. He goes through great character development. This further pushes his his importance to the MCU while becoming a staple in this universe. It's a very different Scott than we've seen before. He's faced with a decision that is so powerful and it kind of changes how he views what he's doing. And I can't wait to see him return. The next character I have is Hope. I think she was great. She doesn't have a huge role, but I would like to see her gain more importance in the future. I just feel like she deserved more. For her name being in the title, she didn't really do that much. She just basically kept bugging Janet about hiding secrets about the Quantum Realm. And I do like the character, I just would like to see more of her, like maybe give her like a more integral part to the story. And she did help out a lot, it's just, it wasn't really, she just seemed like she was on the side a lot. And I can understand why they're doing that because Scott is the main focus, but if it's called Ant-Man and the Wasp, and I think they should have equaled out their importance in some way. Uh, next up I have Cassie. I think she was alright. I like how she was integral to Scott's story of him wanting that time back with her that he missed when he was in the quantum realm when Thanos happened. I feel like Catherine Newton could have brought more emotion to the role. Just felt like she just kept the same face in the most emotional scenes. Like she just got a plain face throughout basically the entire movie. And it's no offense to Catherine, I just feel like more could have been brought to the character. I liked her dynamic with Scott. They have that father-daughter back and forth a lot in this. Scott's also kind of teaching her how to be a superhero, so that was fun to see. And she's obviously going to be a bigger character going forward. So moving on, I have Janet. Michelle Pfeiffer is great. She plays an important role. There's lots of surprises about what she was up to in the Quantum Realm. I'm not going to get into that right now, but I thought she was really cool in this. And we have Hank, and Michael Douglas is always amazing. He surprisingly brings some comedic tone to the movie, although we see some of this from him in the other films, but he did it a lot in this. And I just think Hank was kind of sidelined a lot too, even though he can't really do much, but it was good seeing him come back. Then we have Krylar, who Bill Murray played. I honestly think he was completely unnecessary to the movie. It was cool seeing Bill Murray, but did we really need it? I'll get more into his character in the spoiler talk. Then we have Modok. He was very interesting. It was a nice callback to the first movie. Again, I will get more into Modoc in the spoiler talk. I feel like they nailed the look as much as they could. That's all I'm going to say about Modoc right now. Then we have Kang, who is, in my opinion, the best part of the movie. Jonathan Majors is the GOAT. Uh, he's one of my favorite new characters in the MCU. He delivers such a powerful performance. I can't wait to see more of him. And of course, I will be talking more about him in the spoiler talk. Then we have Story. 
Overall, it was very well told. It jumps around a lot and it's paced very differently. A lot of because Scott and Cassie are divided from Hope, Janet, and Hank, there's a lot of back and forth and it moves very quickly. I just feel like the pacing could have been evened out a little better. I get that they were trying to advance to the greater like story, I'm not going to spoil, but it just felt like they moved around a lot with very quick cuts, but yeah. So it was nice to see the Lang Pym family return. There's lots of powerful themes like family, sacrifice, preservation, and they all have to preserve all of existence by trying to stop Kang. I can't wait to see the outcome of these events, it's going to be very interesting and it sets up a very amazing story for the future. And for anyone that hasn't read it, read Avengers Forever by Kurt Busiek. It seems like that story is going to be a big influence for what's to come. And now moving on to effects. Overall, I thought it was really well done. There's a few iffy shots. Modoc becomes a part of that in a way. And again, they did the best they could with it, but there's some uh, shots with Modoc and then just the background in general with the actors in front of it. Because they did use the volume, which was used for the Mandalorian, the Batman, and Thor Love and Thunder. It's basically just a digital background instead of a green screen and they just stand in front of that. So that obviously gives a different look than removing and then adding a fake background in post, but it does work when it's used well, and for the most part it was used well. There were just a few shots like when they first entered the quantum realm that were a bit off, but overall really good. The visuals were very well designed. It's an interesting terrain and environment in the quantum realm. I feel like they designed that very well. It looks what you'd spit into an AI generator and it like just creates like this rocky lit up area. That's the quantum realm with lots of alien plant life and stuff like that. Um, there's some very well framed shots as well. Now moving on to the music. As a very different score than the last two movies, as some similar elements, you can definitely pick up the main Ant-Man theme in it. There's one scene in particular that was very well composed, and I will get into that more in the spoiler talk. I think Christoph Beck did a great job on this trilogy with the uh, score. Now I'm about to enter spoiler talk, so take a break if you need one, buckle up because there's a lot to talk about, or come back to this after watching the movie. I will give a 5 second gap for anyone that hasn't seen it to prepare to stop listening or watching. So here we go, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Alright, so spoiler talk. I'm going to break this down into 3 parts. I have the decisions made, the post credit scenes, and my overall grading. I have 6 total pages of notes just on the spoiler talk. I had 3 for spoiler free, so this is gonna get very in-depth. I'm gonna start off with the decisions made. I feel like giving this a more serious tone was necessary. Dealing with a villain as powerful as Kang like cannot exist in a comedy. It has to be a more serious tone story and I'm glad they did it that way. I think Hank and Janet should have died in this. It's not that I don't hate their characters, I just think Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer have got to be close to wanting to be done with these roles. I don't know if there's much more they can offer to them because their stories are, they seem like they should be wrapped up and I feel like this was the perfect opportunity to wrap them up. Doing this would further push Scott and Hope's arcs. It gives them more motivation to stop Kang. And I thought Hank should have died when Modoc crashed the ship. That would then give Janet a more emotional situation to go through before she would die. And I've always stood by this thought. I'm fine with them surviving, just I believe it's a missed opportunity to push Scott and Hope's arcs. They haven't really ex experienced the loss. When they have experienced it, they just get what they lost returned to them. 
like Scott lost Cassie when he was in the quantum realm, lost five years with her, and he got Cassie back, so he didn't really, well, he lost the time, but he didn't lose Cassie. And then Hope gets Janet back, who was lost in the quantum realm for 30 years, and she comes back, so they haven't truly experienced a loss, and I feel like this was the perfect chance for them to go through that too push their characters. Moving on to Kang's powerful introduction. I love this character. Majors is perfect in the role. This Kang eliminated other variants playing with the multiverse because they were causing incursions. And if you forget what an incursion is, an incursion occurs when the boundary between two universes erodes and collides, destroying one or both of them entirely, which was explained by Reed Richards in The Multiverse of Madness. It's super cool to see him not hold back, he's super intimidating and threatening. Now I'm just going to mention a scene that I thought was like a masterpiece of a scene, and that's the scene where Scott and Cassie are in the cells in Kang's Citadel. Just Kang revealing his plan, all while he was threatening and forcing Scott to go through with their deal, was so well done. The quiet rising and fading score while all this is happening adds to the intensity of the scene. And I just believe it's like a chef's kiss of the scene. Like he adds to the intimidating part of Kang all while he's dropping some very big information. And there's a lot to take in in that one scene. I can't wait to see Kang return. Personally, I don't think he's dead. I'll get into this more when I talk about the post credit scenes. But he's definitely going to be dominating the MCU for the next three to four years. Moving on, I feel like Bill Murray was not needed at all. He was just another barrier before getting to Kang. There was a lot of build-up trying to get to him. I'm honestly surprised we didn't see more of him sooner. And we do see him in the intro, which by the way, before the movie came out, like I, based on how all the other movies have started, I imagined this is how it would start. And I was mostly right how it would start with Janet in the quantum realm and she finds Kang. And then the Marvel Studios intro would happen. But in this one, the Marvel Studios intro happened first and then it did that flashback where Janet meets Kang. And I was surprised that I was kind of right how that would start. It just made sense how they start that introduction right away and then they go into Scott's life. I had a similar theory with Wakanda Forever how I thought the beginning of the movie would start with like the birth of Namor. That obviously didn't happen but that was just something I thought of when Wakanda Forever was coming out. Um, moving back into this movie, Bill Murray, I feel like he wasn't needed at all. He just, it felt like that whole scene just to get a ship could have been worked out differently. They ultimately didn't do anything in that scene other than get it like steal Krylar's ship. It was just really weird in that one scene. And yes, Bill Murray does that a lot, but I don't know. It just seemed like he wasn't needed at all. He suggests that he's both a freedom fighter and a servant of Kang. Like Kang kind of gave him that status of Lord Krylar. But still, like, I just feel like he wasn't needed at all in this movie. Uh, moving on to Modok. I think it was cool to see the character finally on the big screen. He's super different from the comics, and I think it was cool that Kang finds him and then creates him. And yes, this was Darren Cross from Ant-Man 1, who, when he was kind of deformed and went subatomic at the end of Ant-Man, he uh, just crash-landed, his head was huge, and Kang found him and modified him, and in Modok's words, made him the ultimate weapon. I remember seeing a while ago that he would become good at the end. For the most part, as cool as it was to see him, his character, I feel like, was wasted. I feel like this character should always be someone that's like causing problems in the background, just like in the comics. Like we always have, when a story begins, we always have the intro of these heroes when they're fighting another villain. Then they defeat them and then it moves on to the bigger story. 
I feel like in another Avengers movie or something, you could have had AIM doing something uh, weird with MODOK at the beginning, and then they stop MODOK, and then it moves on to the next story. That's just me though. That's just based on nostalgia, seeing the cartoons do that, seeing the comics do that. And I feel like the effects were fine for trying to adapt a character that was goofy from the start. And anyone getting mad at MODOK's design needs to read comics. And yes, it's weird, but it's just the character. Like, that's how he looks. These are comic book movies. They're adapting the comic books, and you need to understand that they're not going to completely change the way a character looks just because it looks weird. That's how it looked in the books. So, Modoc had some cool scenes overall. I think he was okay. The ending. The Scott versus Kang fight was intense and awesome. I honestly thought Scott was either going to die or get stuck in the quantum realm. My honest reaction when Kang was being sucked into the collapsing power core was like the eyebrow raise emoji. Like, I was like, really? Are they really killing him off in this one? And I understand that he may still return, just, I was like, come on, I, I need more of this Kang. This Kang was really cool, and I feel like he, if he's not the prime Kang in the Kang Dynasty, or Secret Wars, then I'm very interested to see who could be more dangerous than him. I'll get into that when I talk about post credit scenes. But maybe Kang planned that he would be defeated, because in doing this, it would cause the Dynasty to happen. He explained that if he gets stuck, then Chaos would ensue and he didn't get out and scott has that realization after he's back that wait what i just did means that kang won and then he just shakes it off he's like yeah it's probably okay but i thought maybe kang planned that he would be defeated but then i thought after maybe that wouldn't make a ton of sense because he wanted revenge on the other variants because they exiled him to the quantum realm and this ends up causing the secret wars maybe i'm not sure we'll see that coming soon and I do like a happy ending, but I think it should have ended on a darker note. And I understand if they're saving the dark stuff for later. I just feel like maybe Kang should have won in this one. And in a way he did, but I feel like the Pym and Lang family should have been affected in a more dramatic way than the way it ended. But I'm going to move on into the post credit scenes. Scene number one. This was the mid credit scene. And this was my honest reaction. Holy shit. I lost it. This, I feel like, is one of the most surprising and impactful post-credit scenes the MCU has ever given us, next to like Nick Fury appearing in Iron Man to tease the Avengers, but I feel like this, this is huge. So it opens with a gladiator arena or like Coliseum full of people, and I was thinking, where could this be? Well, I wasn't actually thinking anything, like my mind was just racing when this was happening. But after the fact, I was like, where, where is this? Like there's a purple sky, there's purple lightning. We see the timeline later on in the scene so i was just thinking like is this like kind of in between time and space the way the quantum realm was and then we see the council of kangs and a giant kang statue and then that's when i lost it i was like okay here we go they're doing it and it gets crazy real fast i was not expecting this at all this was i'm very surprised this wasn't spoiled for me because this is huge and I'm glad I did see this on the day it came out because if I didn't then I can guarantee I would have been spoiled and I would have been so mad but I absolutely lost it on this scene. We get Ramatut. Go check out my Kang 3 episode where I talk about Ramatut. We have Immortus which is interesting considering that He Who Remains was considered to be like acting as the same role as Immortus like he was the uh not the prime Kang, but the the more experienced one. And then we have the Scarlet Centurion, maybe? 
I'm not sure since he's not red at all, but maybe he's something close to this. Maybe they're adapting a different variant that like will surprise us. But for this episode, I'm going to call him the Scarlet Centurion because uh, that's what came to mind for me. And this scene sets up the dynasty. The dynasty is assembling. It's full of different species too. There's tons of crazy variants. Like there was one with dreads that was like getting all pumped up. Like he's jumping around like he's about to box someone. That was pretty funny. But then we have... All these other ones like it does a pan up into the stadium and we see all these other variants freaking out each other screaming in each other's faces then we see one that looks kind of like a scroll not entirely sure if it was a scroll but it would be really interesting if that is a scroll uh, version of kang but massive fallout is coming there's a lot that's gonna come in the next two to three years and none of us are prepared for it so i'm gonna break down the dialogue in this scene it starts off with, again, the opening of the stadium. Then it does the pan up to the Kang statue, and there's a voiceover where someone says, So, the exiled one is dead. And I'm pretty sure Ramatut was the one saying this. They exiled Kang to the Quantum Realm because he brutally dominated the other timelines. He destroyed them to end all other versions of himself. And the Quantum Realm was the one place where he couldn't affect any of them. Uh, since it doesn't exist in time or space, it's just like an in-between. Like there's no like effect on anything else if you're in there. And these variants believe Kang is dead. I'm always going to go by like anything is possible. And then we hear, you sure he's dead? This is said by Ramatut. It seems that he's unsure of Kang's fate. I do have a feeling he will return. Then the next line, if it wasn't true, I wouldn't call you. And this is what I'm going to refer to as Scarlet Centurion. He responds, he has a silver metallic body with like purple lights and he kind of reminded me of the high evolutionary which we'll see in guardians of the galaxy volume 3. he seems confident that kang is actually dead and this may actually be true but again i'm gonna go by anything as possible i think he will return at some point and then ramatut responds with must really eat you up that you're not the one who killed him so Ramatut suggests that Scarlet Centurion held a grudge against Kang, which is understandable if he tried to wipe him from existence, because the Kang that we've seen for this entire movie has wanted to become the supreme version of himself and conquer everything. And then we hear, none of us killed him. And this is when Immortus enters the scene. And he appears to be the leader of this trio. He's a very powerful variant of Kang. Ramatut even slightly bows down to him, and he says, they did. Kang variants have met our heroes before, that's, I'm assuming, this is what that means. If he doesn't say specifically who killed Kang, then that obviously means they have experience with the Avengers and all these other heroes, or just they're so scared of them that they did kill a version of him that they don't want to mention who it is, they just say they. Then he goes on to say they are beginning to touch the multiverse, and this is in reference to heroes tampering with the multiverse, we've seen this in No Way Home. You've seen this in uh, Doctor Strange, the Multiverse of Madness, and in Loki. He goes on to say, and if we let them, they will take everything we have built. So this, in my opinion, seems that they're afraid that our heroes will ruin their plan or further draw destruction to the multiverse. And they want to contain what they have where a Kang is supreme in every timeline, if that's their plan. And then he goes on to say, so let's stop wasting time. And I was just thinking, here we go. The dynasty's beginning. Then we have more variants entering the arena. Scarlet Centurion says something like, how many of us or something like that? And then Amorta says, all of us. 
and then it does that pan up where it shows all the variants of Kang, and then it cuts to black. And I think all the characters here were super well designed, it's super accurate, except Scarlet Centurion if that's who it actually is because he's silver and not red. I do have a feeling this is actually another variant, but Amortis and Ramatat looked exactly like how I thought they would. Again, this entire scene freaked me out, like I had that holy shit reaction right away. And let me point out, each variant enters the arena from a blue square portal, which is very similar to how Reed Richards enters in Multiverse of Madness. So could this be teasing that Nathaniel Richards is the real identity of Kang? Because then this would tie into Fantastic Four, which is coming soon. And in the comics, Nathaniel Richards is a descendant of Reed Richards, which then means Kang is a relative of Reed. So that is going to be very interesting if they actually follow through with that. So I'm so excited to see what happens next with this setup. It was nuts. Like, again, I feel like this is the most exciting and impactful post credit scene that they have done, just in my honest opinion. But again, these three variants, we have Ramata, Amortis, and maybe Scarlet Centurion. They are going to be the heads, I think, of the Kang Dynasty. They're going to be the ones that all the Avengers have to try to stop, and some serious damage is going to go down. I don't think a lot of our heroes are going to survive this. But moving on to the post credit scene. So, it opens in black, and it's a new variant of Kang that we see named Victor Timely, who was a character in the comics who was an inventor, and I guess I was wrong about that Ramatut being the inventor variant in Loki Season 2 theory I had, but that doesn't mean Ramatut could still be responsible for what I theorized in my episode. If you're curious what I'm talking about, go check it out. I mentioned some very interesting and cool things that could happen with Ramatut in the MCU. But I did mention that maybe he was the inventor that was rumored to be in Loki Season 2, but obviously now it's Victor Timely. And in this scene, it looks like he's showcasing an invention. There's like a 1920s or 30s setting that's going on. And Loki and Mobius are in the audience. And I was surprised about that. I thought this was actually going to be like the trailer for Season 2 of Loki, but it, was, it looks like it's just a scene from it. And then I'm going to break down the dialogue now. So it opens with Kang saying, Time is everything. And then the curtains pull back to reveal a figure and an invention. And there's a sign that reveals the name Victor Timely. Then he goes on to say, it shapes our lives, but perhaps we could shape it. And then it reveals Jonathan Majors, who then smirks to the crowd. And then we see Loki, who has a very scared look on his face. And he says, it's him. So maybe Loki is hunting Kang variants now. He's trying to prevent the dynasty with Mobius, kind of like behind the scenes. I think that'd be really cool if that's what season two is about. They're going through different timelines to find different variants of Kang to kind of stop them before they're assembled by Amortis, Ramatut, and Scarlet Centurion. And then Mobius says, what? You made him sound like this terrifying figure. And then that reveals Mobius, who was convinced that Victor Timely is not a threat because he just looks like this normal guy in the 1920s and 30s. And then Loki said, he is, and Loki remains fixed on Victor while he says this, with that still fearful look on his face, and it cuts to black. I think these two scenes were perfect setups for what is coming. They executed this very well. I highly praise Kevin Feige for deciding this to include all these scenes that way, and anyone else, like the producers, uh, Stephen Broussard, all of them that went into this movie. I feel like 
they nailed the setup going forward and that's what a post credit scene should be not that it has to be like every single time it could just be building off of the story that was set up maybe with like a little joke but i feel like this was perfect because it's the, the first project of phase five it's introducing the next narrative for the what the saga is going to build up to and i feel like that was the perfect way to tease what is going to come so huge props to them for doing that they blew my mind with that i honestly was not expecting any of that moving on i'm going to do my overall grading so a few points just before i grade it we have a great introduction to phase five and the new story for the future Kang is the reigning force to be reckoned with now. We have great performances by everyone. It's very entertaining, solid story, very interesting setup. And I would definitely need to rewatch this at some point to deep dive on some details. So my final grade, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. And don't let the critic reviews judge your opinion on this movie. I personally believe the Rotten Tomato score is a bit extreme for this one. A 48 Rotten is kind of like, there's no way it's that bad. Like Eternals was 47. Even that, I think, was a bit extreme. I don't know. That's just my opinion. I feel like they were a bit extreme on the Rotten Tomatoes score. Not that I look at Rotten Tomatoes a whole lot and let that like change my opinion on wanting to see the movie because it's marveling to see it regardless. But I just feel like they could have like chilled out on that a bit. But I am glad the audience score is high. So go see it. There's something for everyone in this. There's comedy. There's action. There's the family dynamic stuff. It's very well done. Um, go check it out when you have a chance. I saw it in IMAX. I highly recommend seeing it in IMAX if you're able to. I'm sure it's just as good in standard format, but IMAX was just really immersive because you have the bigger picture. The visuals with the Quantum Realm look really great in that format. So if you can see it in IMAX. So that's my review on Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. I'm looking forward to the next projects coming out. It seems like the next one is Secret Invasion, which is the Disney Plus series. So when that comes out, I will be reviewing each episode each week, or maybe in a collection, depending on like how much time I have. But yeah, so thanks for listening. Thanks for watching this. Go see the movie. Please support Marvel Studios. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Thwip underscore media. Make sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel Thwip Media, and make sure to listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And again, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching, and I will see you all next time. And look out for the little guy.